Welcome to Talking Wyndham, your weekly insight into the people who make our city surprising, fascinating, vibrant and interesting. Talking Wyndham is an initiative of the Committee for Wyndham. All the latest news and events are on our website and Facebook page. G'day and welcome to another edition of the Talking Wyndham podcast with thanks to the Committee for Wyndham. My name's Kevin Hillier. Uh, Today, another very interesting episode on the way. You're going to meet Colin Twigg, who's the principal at Twigg Family Law. And in the lockdown situation, we've seen a number of stories around. We're going to talk to Colin about those, about how uh, life in lockdown uh, and in isolation is affecting families and is affecting uh, outcomes of uh, proceedings. So I'll talk uh, about the nitty gritty of that with uh, Colin fairly shortly. Just a little reminder, of course, again, about the committee for Wyndham, uh, please jump on the uh, on the website or on the Facebook page and uh, have a look at some of the great programs and uh, and some of the great benefits available from uh, from our great partners and supporters through the committee for Wyndham. Sure, you'll find something of interest and uh, certainly something of benefit. Let's get to today's podcast, and uh, it's a very interesting and uh, absorbing subject. It is uh, family law, and the man we're talking to today is the principal of Twig Family Law, Colin Twig. Colin, thank you so much for your time. I know you're a busy man. Um, uh, is it a busier than normal time for for your line of work at the moment? Uh, well, the uh, first few weeks after we had the shutdown in early March, things were uh, pretty quiet. I think everyone just locked themselves up at home. Uh, but over time, as we've all got a bit more uh, technologically proficient and uh, worked out how to use Zoom and uh uh, people have been prepared to consult lawyers by telephone rather than meet face-to-face. I mean, people would prefer face-to-face, but they've become accustomed to Zoom and telephone conferences. Things are starting to open up again. So uh, uh, I'd say we're about back to where we were pre, uh, uh, pre-early March, uh, if not a little bit busier. Uh, but I expect that to increase over the next couple of months. I think uh, we're in for a significant increase in family law disputes. Yeah, uh, which is a sad fact of life, but uh, I think that's what's going to happen. It's just the nature of the yeah. beast that we're, that we're dealing with at the moment. Let's uh, let's go back it a is. little and, and fill in uh, the details before we we explore that area a, a little more. Uh, just uh, yeah. you personally, how long you've been in uh, in Wyndham and in Werribee and uh, and around the around the joint? Around the joint, uh, okay. well, I uh, <laughs> I started my own practice in 1984 as a first year lawyer, which. Um, uh, after 36 years, I realised was a bit of a mistake, but I was pretty uh-huh. wet behind the ears, and uh, uh, had that practice for about five years. Uh, I then went and worked for a firm in Williamstown in 1990, and uh, I used to alternate my time between Werribee and Williamstown. I'd spend uh, about half my time in Werribee and half my time in Williamstown. Then in 1994, joined a firm uh, in uh, Werribee. Uh, which was Harwood Andrews. Uh, five years later, became a partner. I was partner there for 15 years. And then in 2014, uh, I uh, took over the Werribee practice of Harwood Andrews. So uh, I've been working basically exclusively in Werribee for 30 years and uh, certainly exclusively in family law for 30 years. So uh, I've seen a big change in uh, in Werribee over that time and as everyone else has. Uh, what's what's yeah. the things that immediately stick out to you in that 30 years that have changed enormously? I think people are a bit more technologically savvy. Uh, I think people can do their own research about a lot of things. Yeah. Uh, uh, they don't have to just listen to a lawyer. You can go online, go to the family court websites. Uh, people can do their own divorces now. If there's no children, that's a bit, bit easier to do. I think the... Um, 
people are connected to their lawyers a lot more quickly now than they used to be. In the old days, you know, you'd send a letter and uh, the lawyer would get it a day later and a couple of days later the lawyer would deal with it and then they <laughs> dictate yeah. a letter back to the client. Well, now it's a bit more uh, instantaneous. Uh, people would uh, now email you and expect to re- that you're going to read that email, uh, if not straight away, at some time during the day and uh, expect a response fairly quickly. So we're, we're the uh, immediacy of being able to give advice is uh, probably the most um, – obvious uh, change in the way we practice now and uh, of course the internet has changed things uh, yeah. being able to uh, produce documents quickly uh, email them to clients instantly get responses instantly you know correct things uh, by word rather than having them all retyped so uh, and it's a completely different practice now to what it was 30 years ago and uh, but I think that's just the business generally people expect yeah. to be able to contact their advisor straight away uh, and uh, that's what we have to become accustomed to, which puts a, a bit of a pressure on us. I mean, account, other professionals are in the same boat. Accounts are in the same boat. Yep. Uh, like my clients email their accounts and expect an answer straight away, and a lot of yeah. ring them and expect them to answer the phone straight away. So uh, there's no hiding behind a screen. Yeah. <laughs> you're, Co- you're Cole, the, yeah. the functionality of, of, uh, of doing law has, has obviously changed, as you say, but has the law itself changed much in that 30-year period, the family law? Uh, no, no, to be honest, no. Uh, there's been a, well, the changes have been these basically. From the Family Law Act came into effect in 1975, which made a introduced a no fault system. Prior to that, there was uh, grants for divorce, such as you know adultery and desertion and those sort of things. Yeah. Uh, so we had a no fault system that hasn't changed. Uh, things that have changed are in the early, I think it was about 2001, they changed the law in relation to accessing party superannuation. Before then, you couldn't split superannuation between parties. Yeah. So that made uh, it difficult sometimes if one party uh, was uh, – or so if you had, a, say, a house and super, you couldn't sort of divide the house and divide the super. Well, now you can. So we can have what we call super splitting orders where the super is divided equally between the parties or in whatever proportions they agree. So that was a significant change. And also the change where de facto couples uh, uh, and same-sex couples uh, have identical rights in relation to property as uh, married couples. So, as I say to clients, whether you're uh, a married couple, de facto couple, or same-sex couple, we're all in the same boat together. Yep. There's slight changes in relation to facto couples uh, in terms of time limits from the end of the relationship, but uh, really, uh, as far as determining a property settlement as between those three groups, it's, it's the same same steps. So, that's been the significant change, uh, which has made it a lot easier. You know, in the old days, we had to go to the county court or supreme court for de facto a couple property disputes, which was a, a different system to the family court and, and uh, far more expensive and slow. Uh, whereas we're all in the same court now. Although the, the current court system is really a disgrace in terms of the, the time that people are locked up in courts if they can't agree on a property settlement. Oh, uh, really? Still? Uh, well, it compels people to make a commercial decision in a lot of cases. Yeah. Um, and I say that to all clients. I'm at a mediation last week, and I said, and as most lawyers will say to clients, and mediators will say, uh, we'll only settle this if you both walk out a bit upset and a bit pissed off with the settlement that you've agreed on, because it means you've both compromised. But that's the system, and that's what the uh, the system compels you to do, yeah. because the delay and cost and stress and all the rest of it are just um, not worth it. Though, though it's often, it is often acrimonious anyway, isn't it? So the uh, the stress levels are, are kind of uh, belting through the top of the roof anyway. Oh, they are, yes. Uh, and I think as lawyers, we've got to be aware of that. I mean, people uh, often have agendas other than just getting a property settlement. Yeah. I mean, we've got to be aware that, that some 
the motivators for some clients in family law matters are not uh, getting what they want. Sorry, not necessarily getting a uh, just and equitable settlement, but some parties are uh, hell bent on dragging things out. Some people are hell bent on having the last say. Some are hell bent on uh, uh, fighting down to every you know every last little item in the house, uh, down to the last print or the steak knives, whatever. Yeah. So it, sometimes you've got to uh, really get them to focus on. No, the bigger picture, which is not always easy because uh, that's sometimes the, uh, the reason for the breakdown of the relationship that people have that mindset and uh, they've got to turn it around. So, I mean, I say to all clients in family law, matters, there's three things you've got to try and avoid in this jurisdiction, and that's stress, cost, and risk. Yeah. It's not stressful for me because I'm used to it. Uh, actually, the longer it goes, the more money I make. There's always a risk. There's always yeah. a risk of getting a worse result going to court than what you can negotiate. But... Uh, and sometimes people's expectations are, have to be managed. Well, in all cases, they've got to be managed. So part of the problem is that uh, people will often say, I want what's just and fair or just and equitable or I only want what's fair. But their perception of what's fair is through the prism of their own eyes and yeah. uh, not necessarily marry up with the Family Law Act. Yeah. yeah. Which begs the question, yeah. uh, what was the attraction about family law for you? Well, it, coincidentally, I went to a firm in Williamstown in 1990 on the basis that I didn't have to do family law because right. I found it uh, a stress when I wasn't uh, an expert in it. So I tried to avoid it. But uh, as it turned out, two-thirds of the work that came in through the door in Williamstown and Werribee was family law. So it was either do that or there's no work for you. So yeah. after getting a uh, getting on top of it all, uh, I felt comfortable doing it. And, of course, when you've done the one area of law for 30 years, you feel comfortable in knowing the law and the system and there's sort of a uh, – these is a bit of a pressure for you. So, I mean, I would never try and do a conveyance now or a sale of a business or uh, anything other than just family law. So that, that gives me comfort in uh, sticking to that area and gives, should give clients comfort that uh, you know, with that experience and uh, comes knowledge and uh, you know, they value the advice that you can give them. Oh, absolutely. And and, yeah. and I guess they, they come to you in a, in a most vulnerable uh, uh, way, sometimes vulnerable in terms that they're, they're, they're deeply hurt and sometimes vulnerable because they're deeply angry. Yes, all, all those emotions. Um, yeah, I mean, as I said, sometimes you, it's managing the expectations about what they can achieve through the law and through the court system. I mean, some people would say, well, I'm only going to be happy if uh, the other parties um, – strung up in Berkshire, Berk Street Mall and gets uh, 30 cuts with a rattan. <laughs> but uh, yeah. that's not what a family court judge is going to do. Yeah. Uh, and I think some people also get frustrated that uh, people uh, are a bit loose with the truth in family law matters and people's perception of the truth over time cha- uh, changes or varies. So, yeah, they, they are very uh, vulnerable when they first come in. So I think that first meeting, uh, you've got to achieve a few objectives. I think the first objective is to give them confidence that um, – you know what you're talking about, uh, explain to them what the pathway is going to be, explain what the law is so that you can manage their expectations and then uh, hopefully that demystifies the law a bit and demystifies the process because so many people come in, they've got absolutely no idea what's in front of them, uh, what are the, the court's considerations for determining these things, what the court's processes are for determining these things. And I think once they're on top of that, and that might be an hour or two hour meeting, then they can walk away. Well, they can see where they we see where they're going, and uh, I think that eases uh, stress uh, quite a bit. Certainly, in property matters, kids matters. There's always going to be some stress. You know, when people are fighting yeah. over care arrangements for children, you can't always allay those concerns. 
Clearly, that must be the hardest area for you when there when there are other people involved, not just the the, the husband and wife or the couple themselves. Um, it, when the kids get involved, that would be when uh, the stress levels go up, and I and I imagine from your point of view, would be the hardest of the cases to manage. They are. I've sort of got a checklist in my own mind of, of the most horrible cases I've had over the years, and yeah. certainly they're the cases that uh, involve uh, abuse of children uh, and. It's not always the case that DHS uh, on top of those issues. Uh, people get very frustrated with the system that uh, you know, a phone call to DHS to go and check on a, on a another parent who they think might be abusing drugs or alcohol or yep. you know, mixing in poor, poor company uh, is not always going to get the result they want. And the court system is fairly laborious uh, and it's you know it can be uh, expensive and stressful. So yeah, they are the worst cases. But uh, I mean, I've had some horrible cases where there's been allegations of sexual abuse of kids and uh, physical abuse of kids, and uh, they're certainly the most harrowing. Uh, those and I think extreme cases of domestic violence um, they're also very harrowing. The court system uh, I think does as best as good as it can in in terms of protecting victims of uh, domestic violence, but uh, as uh, you know, Rosie Batty and other people have found out, you know, yeah. a piece of paper is not going to stop someone. You know, unless they're in jail, that's the only way to stop them. So those cases are also particularly harrowing. As someone who's been in family law now for, for you know thirty plus years, uh, is this are you worried about what's going to happen as a result of what we we're going through now and what we've been through for the last few months? We're basically we're locked up in the in our homes with each other. We're in close proximity of each other. And if there are yeah. any any kind of uh, cracks or um, sort of uh, in the relationships got any problems, uh, now's the time when it's going to rear its head. Oh, it certainly will. Um, I mean, I was thinking before I came on about the, the reasons that relationships break down, and uh, I mean, as you can imagine, I mean, I, I'm an amateur psychologist, but it's amateur psychologist built up over speaking to it. You know, four or five people a week for thirty odd years, yeah. and it's not always the case that I ask them why the relationship broke down. And uh, sometimes it just comes out in the course of uh, talking to them. But th- there's no doubt that financial pressures um, are a significant uh, cause of relationship breakdown. And, and I agree with you. People being locked down in the house together is only going to exacerbate uh, small personality disputes. I mean, if you think about it logically. I mean, people often, you know, if they're both working or one party's working, they see each other for a couple of hours of a night and then. Uh, of a weekend, uh, if you and little things can be overlooked or small disputes can be put to one side because they can disappear when parties are at work or apart. But as you say, I mean they're heightened and exaggerated when parties are locked under the one roof. So I think uh, that is going to be a cause of um, uh, significant uh, matrimonial distress. Uh, I think the uh, financial distress is also going to cause a lot of breakdowns. Um, I mean I mentioned in a. Uh, discussion with, I think it was a committee for Wyndham discussion the other day, that I think if the JobKeeper subsidy is um, either abandoned or significantly cut back and the bank starts saying, well, look, we're jack of just uh, charging interest or interest only or giving people a moratorium on payments, then we're going to see a tsunami of family law matters because uh, with, with all the different things that cause relationship issues, I think uh, financial pressures are right up there at the top. And uh, with no light at the end of the tunnel, uh, parties locked up together, uh, being unable to meet the mortgage and all of the, you know, your standard payments, uh, living expenses, then uh, I think the, the cracks are going to show. And, uh, of course, the inevitable result of that is breakdown of relationships. 
in most cases, a house will have to be sold. Yeah. Uh, parties are going to have to go and find rental properties, or one party will, or both parties if the house is sold. Kids are going to be um, distressed as a result of that breakdown. I mean, there's a huge social fallout of all of that as well. So I know the government can't say, well, look, here's money to keep people happy because that'll keep the relationship together, but that'll be an inevitable consequence of um, withdrawing the JobKeeper payment or and all banks uh, coming down hard on people. Yeah, well, uh, at some stage we, we actually have we have to address the economic reality of the situation we're in at some stage. And, uh, yeah, that's that's when uh, the wave, the, the they've talked about the second wave of the actual pandemic, but the, the wave of the economic fallout, which is a social economic fallout, well, I, I, don't even think, I don't think we've seen the tip of that yet. No, no. Look, I spoke to um, a clerk at the Werribee Court just to get a feeling for whether there's been an increase in um, – Intervention order applications. Uh, she indicated that they were at a similar rate to uh, pre-March this year, okay. uh, but I expect that to increase. I mean, I think. I mean, the papers have sort of anecdotally been saying that uh, numbers have been increasing. Uh, I haven't noticed that through my client base at the moment that there's an increase in intervention order applications, but uh, I suspect that will be that, that'll be that'll happen. Which again, it's sad that the relationships break down just to that extent that one party needs an intervention order. And of course, as I said, there's the fallout on the kids. And of course, then that exacerbates the stress because if one party is forced to leave a home because of an intervention order, they then can't see the children unless there's an agreement. Yep. So if there's no agreement, they've got to go to court. The court process is not simple, it's not quick, it's not cheap. So there's all that extra fallout as well. So. Uh, we've got some significant social issues on top of the financial issues. That's that's correct. Uh, yeah. Law being what it is, and uh, you know, there's a lot of grey areas in law, and, and we don't understand them. And I'm not even sure sometimes that lawyers understand them. Or, uh, uh, but the, the, what are the myths about family law that people have in their head when they walk into your office before they even sit down and and open their mouth? Already, they've got a perception in their head about what's going to happen. I think the biggest myth. That's a good question. The, the biggest myth that um, I constantly have to debunk is that when people live together in a de facto relationship uh, that after, and this must go around the community of people to speak amongst themselves, that if you live together for six months, then the other party's automatically entitled to half half the assets. And some people think it's 12 months. The the reality is under under the Family Law Act, parties have to be in a de facto relationship for at least two years before the other party can make a claim, unless there's a child of the relationship or unless one party's made a significant financial contribution to the other. So, the myth is that as soon as you're in a relationship for six or 12 months, the other party can claim half your wealth. So that that's one of the big myths, and it's just totally untrue. But for some reason, it's out there in the community. I'm not sure why so many people think that's the case. So you've got to have been in a de facto relationship for two years at least uh, before you can make a claim, unless, as I said, unless there's a child of the relationship or one party's made a significant financial contribution to the other. But if there's no child or there hasn't been a significant financial contribution, the fact you're together for two years doesn't automatically entitle the other party to anything Anyway, I mean, yeah. there's a whole lot of factors the court's got to look into that uh, take a bit of time to sit down and, and nut out before we determine whether there's a claim. Um, I, in fact, have a lot of um, call them high net worth clients who are in de facto relationships with no intention of having a child, but uh, are sort of counting down the days towards the end of the two years because at the end of the two years, they've got to, got to make a choice of either having a, uh, the equivalent of a prenup signed to protect their wealth or saying that's the end of the relationship. So yes. I know that's not very romantic at Heading up to 23 months to say, here, you've got to sign this or it's all over. But uh, that's the reality with some high net worth people who have um, repartnered with uh, people of, uh, I suppose, uh, lesser means or uh, 
that's your initial contribution from uh, edgewise. Uh, yeah. pre- prenups now, um, uh, prenups has always been something that uh, has been like a Hollywood kind of show busy thing that uh, because it's a, a yeah. rich pe- person's thing. But has that become more the norm these days? So some sort of financial uh, agreement between two parties? No, I wouldn't say it's the norm, uh, but. If parties go into a relationship with a significant disparity in, in their initial contribution, one party will, will often want to protect that. Um, what the Family Law Act says, though, is that if you can have a prenup, but if there's the agreement doesn't cover off the fact that one party is going to have children, then the court can set it aside. If there's an argument that the one party has caused hardship as a result of entering into that agreement, let me use an example, say the parties marry and they say that, sorry, parties enter into a binding financial agreement and say, well, if we ever separate, uh, husband will get this and the wife will get that. But if in the meantime, the wife's had one or two children and there's no provision in the agreement for any uplift as a result of having children, then the court's going to pretty easily set that aside. Where they are popular is, uh, I'll call them for second relationships. Yep. Say parties meet you know, in their 50s and 60s, got children by a prior relationship. There might be a disparity in their initial contribution, but one party says, look, what I want to do is make sure that whatever I bring into the relationship will go to my children. Uh, and both parties agree with that proposition and that whatever they accumulate together, they divide down the middle. So those sort of prenups are, or cohabitation agreements, you know, depending whether they're going to get married or not, are quite common. And uh, I think they're pretty useful. It gives uh, the children of relationship a bit of comfort because sometimes children can get a bit um, uh, inquisitive about what the financial arrangements are for mum or dad's second relationship, Uh, uh, that they're not going to miss out uh, or that there's uh, uh, someone's ended a relationship with a, you know, the common term is a gold digger. So we, uh, the expression I use is that we just quarantine their initial contributions so that whatever happens, um, the person who introduces those assets is always going to keep them and then when they die, obviously it'll go to their kids. So those agreements are quite common. Uh, for young couples, you know, if they're um, – and the reason I shy away from doing them for young couples is because there's just so many variables. It's very hard to cover off on all the possible eventualities for a young couple who get married. So with their, in their mid-20s, one party's got 80 grand and one party's got nothing. Uh who knows how long they're going to be together? Who knows what the, the financial circumstances of them are going to be? Uh, we don't know whether they're going to have kids and how many. Uh, we don't know whether all of them are going to inherit any money uh, or receive any money by any other sort of windfall. And, and having a formula that's fair to everyone uh, in those circumstances is just impossible. Yeah, so I don't, I don't even attempt to try and do them. But I think in the situation of second relationships for couples where there's no chance of them having uh, children because it's late in life, then those those yeah. Financial agreements are appropriate. Uh, they're easily drawn up, and uh, everyone gets them. And sort of create, they are create a bit of harmony with their kids as well. Colin, have yeah. you noticed in the in the thirty years that the balance has changed, male female, in terms of uh, expectations of going into into family law courts, and, and you know men coming out with custody of children and all that sort of thing, which which thirty forty years ago was never the case. Yeah, well, it's two things. I think the um, I don't think there's been any change in. Because the law hasn't changed, I mean, the law in 1975 is the same as it is now. So the same steps that the court takes to reach a property settlement, they haven't changed. So there's no more favouritism towards mothers with children or the economically inferior party. That's always been the same. Expectations in relation to, the old word was custody, they've changed the terminology to say lives with, but we'll call it custody because everyone understands that. 
has there been any change in expectation in relation to custody? Yes, there has. Uh, so just to go back to your, your previous point about myths, I think some fathers come in here and see me and say, you know, I've read that uh, the starting point is that children should spend uh, equal time with both parents. Well, well, that's fine, but in reality, that is never going to work in the majority of cases because, I mean, to use an extreme example, um, dads in Werribee and mums in Dandenong, we're never going to be able to spend equal time with the kids. Or yeah. mums in Werribee uh, and dads an interstate truck driving away half the time, so you're never going to be able to have equal time with the kids. So the court sort of created, and I think this was through some pressure on the uh, federal government from fathers' groups that they said, well, let's amend the Family Law Act to say the starting point is uh, children should spend equal time with both parents. Uh, That is, um, the court basically says, well, that situation is never going to apply if there's uh, an intervention order or if it's impractical, and that applies in a lot of cases. So so that disqualifies you automatically from a shared care arrangement. Uh, The other thing is that the family psychologists will say, especially for younger children, that children benefit from having a home. Uh, Psychologically, this is a home. This is where they feel safe. This is their primary residence, and there's another place that they visit. So... That is a bit of a myth that uh, fathers have are, are going to automatically going to be able to spend equal time with the kids. Yeah. That's not to say that more don't now than used to, uh, but it's really got to be um, uh, practical and probably most significantly, and I heard a judge say this once, that they were never going to order a shared care arrangement unless mum and dad walked into court still holding hands <laughs> because the, yeah. the, level of, the level of cooperation just has to be uh, really high and significant and uh, or communication and cooperation, otherwise that agreement falls down pretty quickly. So so, so that expectation of fathers increased. Uh, it's dropped off over the past few years, but uh, I think we're back to where we always were, that uh, children primarily reside with mum. If it's practical, then uh, then equal time with mum and dad. Yeah. yeah. Colin, how do you cope, mate? I mean, so it is a very stressful uh, and and a, an environment that uh, sometimes is not pleasant. How, how do you cope? Well, I could crack the joke about um, <laughs> uh, drinking to excess, um, <laughs> but uh, no, no. I think the my coping mechanism is just to stay on top of it. I think yeah. if you can stay on top of the uh, the level of work, if you can stay on top of. Uh, the law and stay on top of the court's processes, then that eases the pressure. Um, I mean, immediately you, you know, you're not familiar with any of those and you fall behind. So, uh, and I think also managing clients' expectations from an early stage. Yeah. You don't want to undersell it. I suppose if you're going to do anything, you want to undersell and over-deliver. You don't want to do the opposite because as soon as you've got a client with an expectation uh, that's beyond what you can possibly achieve, then uh, you've got a disgruntled client and, uh, and you put a pressure on yourself. So, but other than that, I like uh, following the horses. So I don't have any kids of my own, but I uh, like um, always had uh, interest in horses. Uh, Werribee Footy Club, the Mighty Bombers, and uh, I've got an equal interest in the dogs. So as I say, I'm married to Essendon, but I see Footscray on the side. So oh, I like to play Bulldog games <laughs> as I do the Bombers. Yeah, uh, very good, yeah. Colin. Uh, there's a reason you've been in this industry for such a long time. Uh, it's very obvious. At Twig Family Law, we 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 thank you so much for your time today and explaining some of those things. I hope we don't see a uh, a big spike in the next couple of months, but uh, yeah, reality and uh, and I guess uh, what we what we're thinking is uh, that that might happen. But uh, I'm sure you'll be on top of it. Thanks so much for your time. That's all right. My pleasure. Good on you, Kev. Speak soon.
Well, thanks to Colin for his time. Busy man and a well-known man around uh, the uh, city of uh, Wyndham and uh, the Werribee area for many, many years now. Often see him at the footy. Uh, so good on you, Colin. Thanks for your time. We really appreciate it. Twig Family Law, of course, is in Werribee, uh, 9741 0077 is the telephone number if you uh, need any of the services that Colin uh, talked about uh, in the podcast today. Hope you got something out of it. Uh, hope you enjoyed it. And we'll look forward to your company on the next Talking Wyndham podcast with thanks to the Committee for Wyndham. Thanks for listening. Talking Wyndham is an initiative of the Committee for Wyndham. All the latest news and events are on our website and Facebook page. <laughs>